urban legends. In the garden of biblical interpretation, boy, they grow like weeds. Naturally, it's important to know what the Bible says, but it's also important to know what the Bible does not say. Coming up, urban legends of the Old Testament will help you sort through truth from legend. But right now, current events straight from the Middle East. This is The Land and the Book with author and conference speaker, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger asking, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? And why is it important? And, and what does it mean for you, Charlie? Yeah, John, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. It's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort. And it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135 year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Right now, let's turn our focus toward current events from the Middle East. Israel's election is now set for November the 1st, less than four months from now. Charlie, what's the latest on the different political parties jockeying to secure an advantage with voters? You know, John, jockeying is actually a word to use right now because it's a horse race of an election, mm. and it's going to be about as tricky and brutal as a 14-horse race on a muddy track. In the last election, 13 parties of the 39 that registered to run actually secured enough votes to be in the Knesset. We don't know how many parties are going to file for this election yet, but somewhere around 13 or 14 will have at least an outside chance to win enough votes to secure representation. Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party is currently favored to win the largest block of seats, projected right now to be around 34 or 35. Now, this could be his final chance to return as prime minister. His usual group of coalition partners bring the total potential seats to 58 or 59, still short of the 61 needed to form a coalition government. The key for Netanyahu would seem to be the Yamina party, uh, the party of outgoing prime minister Naftali Bennett. Bennett turned over the reins of his party to his longtime political partner, Ayelet Shaked, and initial polls show that Yamina is hovering right around the threshold to secure four seats. If her party crosses the election threshold and then joins with Netanyahu, that would give him and his conservative coalition 62 or 63 seats, enough to form a government. But her party faces several possible challenges. Three party members defected during the past year. Two might join Netanyahu's party, while one said he would not. It's possible the Yamina party could implode entirely and fail to secure enough votes to make it into the Knesset. If Netanyahu offers some of the departing Yamina MK's reserve slots on the Likud ticket, well, that could draw away election financing from Yamina since the money's awarded on the basis of current individual Knesset members. Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party and Gideon Sa'ar's New Hope Party have been in negotiations to join forces and run as a bloc, but the two leaders have a level of distrust for each other that makes that alliance problematic. Mm. So all that to say, watch for this election horse race to be run in two phases. In the first phase, each party will be jockeying for position, searching out the potential future coalition partners based on perceived strength from regular polling. And then once the final party slates are finalized in mid-September, watch the final sprint to the finish line as each party attacks its rivals and pushes to secure as many votes as possible, 
even if those votes are coming at the expense of their own potential allies. Like a horse race run on a wet track, John, expect to see a lot of mud flying as this election nears the finish. Well, from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, Israel is exploring ways to tackle water issues. What are the challenges facing Israel as it tries to rejuvenate these historic bodies of water? Everyone admits there's a problem, but few seem to be able to agree on a solution, or at least on a solution that will actually make an impact. Let me start up north with the Sea of Galilee. After two winters of above-average rainfall, the sea was almost completely filled by April. But just a few years ago, the sea had dropped to the point where water could no longer be pumped out for use. So the long-term solution, which hopefully will be in place by next spring, is to pump excess desalinated water from Israel's five desalination plants into the sea to keep it close to full year-round. Now, that's a relatively simple solution, though it brings its own set of environmental questions that still need to be addressed as the project begins. The more complex problem is what to do about the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. One suggestion is to pump more water into the Sea of Galilee and then let it flow down the Jordan to replenish the Dead Sea. Now, that seems like a logical solution, but the country of Jordan has said, well, wait, if more water is coming down the Jordan River, we're going to increase the amount of water we pump out to meet our needs. So little of the water would actually make it to the Dead Sea. The second option for the Dead Sea is the so-called Red Dead Project, where they were going to build a desalination plant in Aqaba and provide water for Jordan and then pump the remaining slurry from Aqaba to the Dead Sea. Well, the cost, as well as environmental concerns and objections by the companies mining the Dead Sea for minerals, has sidelined that option. Another suggested option is to close all mining operations at the Dead Sea. Up to half the drop in the Dead Sea's water every year is caused by these operations to extract minerals. But the economic loss makes this option politically problematic. Uh, The one thing everyone's agreeing on is that something needs to be done. Uh, Since 1976, the Dead Sea has shrunk by 50%. Wow. Ezekiel does predict a day when the Dead Sea will come to life and teem with fish. But right now, that body of water needs help. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler. I'm John Geiger, pondering the fact that Osama bin Laden was killed 11 years ago. His organization, Al-Qaeda, was eclipsed by ISIS, which was then crushed by the U.S. and its allies four years ago. Charlie, are both groups now assigned to the dustbin of history, or did we perhaps declare victory too soon? Well, it looks like we might have declared victory too soon. Two weeks ago, the U.S. killed a senior leader of Al-Qaeda in Syria. We announced that the killing disrupted Al-Qaeda's ability to carry out attacks against U.S. citizens and others around the world. But the point missed by most is that Al-Qaeda is still around and evidently still plotting attacks. West Africa is facing a growing insecurity caused in part by attacks from both ISIS and Al-Qaeda-inspired groups. In Yemen, Ten soldiers were killed two weeks ago, and six more were killed this past week in attacks linked to al-Qaeda. In Afghanistan, ISIS is now the main military threat to the Taliban, who are scrambling to consolidate their control over the country. To counter the threat by ISIS, the Taliban are aligning more closely with al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda's core leadership is now residing in the eastern part of Afghanistan. It's like a cancer that was thought to have been removed. It seems that both Al-Qaeda and ISIS are trying to stage a comeback in the Middle East and Africa. And to the extent the West remains distracted by other issues like Ukraine and Russia, it's likely that both these groups will continue to rebuild, 
rearm and eventually relaunch attacks against us. Boy, that's scary. And, you know, you, you seem to see very little of this in our media at all, Charlie. Our media is capable of focusing on one event at a time, I think. And uh, they're alternating now between Ukraine, oil prices, and uh, the uh, mass terror attacks here in the United States. But as a result, these other ones are just off the radar for most news media and as a result for most Americans. Well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created a food crisis because of the disruption of wheat exports from both countries. However, an Israeli biotech company is developing a solution to the wheat shortage. Tell us about this timely innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, it's nice to have good news, isn't it, John? The Israeli biotech company is called LaVie, L-A-V-I-E, Bio. Uh, They're utilizing their biological expertise along with artificial intelligence tools to boost wheat yields. The product they've developed is a cutting-edge inoculant called simply Result. It combines two bacteria strains to the seed that improve nutrient availability and uptake, improving overall plant health. The product will allow the average wheat grower to increase yield by three to four bushels per acre. Now, they launched the product in the U.S. and sold out of their production run for the 2022 growing season. In the near term, they hope to broaden sales throughout the U.S. and Canada and then later go into Europe. They're also working on expanding the technology to other crops. At a time of food shortage in many parts of the world, it's encouraging to see a company like LaVie Bio from Amazing Israel responding with practical solutions. Charlie, a fascinating conversation coming up on the program, Urban Legends of the Old Testament. Uh, They say that in the garden of biblical interpretation, they grow like weeds. So we're going to enjoy a conversation about these urban legends And then we're going to dig into some questions later on. Uh, People emailing us their questions about the Bible, prophecy in the Middle East. That's segment three. You don't want to miss that. And segment four is always your devotional. What's our focus today? We're going to be heading up to uh, right near Nazareth to a place called the Gath Heifer. Most people have never heard of it, but it's where the prophet Jonah's from. And we're going to talk about Jonah and running from God. Okay, we'll look forward to hearing that conversation and much more. Listen, your thoughts are always welcome. Love to hear how the broadcast is making a difference in your life. Send us an email, will you? The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Urban Legends of the Old Testament next on The Land and the Book. Urban legends. In the garden of biblical interpretation, they grow like weeds. Naturally, it's important to know what the Bible says, but it's also important to know what the Bible does not say. Up next on The Land and the Book, urban legends of the Old Testament will help you sort through truth from legend. I'm John Geiger saying thanks for connecting with us. Hey, here's a quick thought first on creative ways that we can share our faith with Jewish friends and neighbors. So God has opened the door for you to build a friendship with a a Jewish friend. And you're wondering, are there specific ways that you could pray for that Jewish friend in their spiritual journey to understanding who Messiah is? Let's ask Eva Rydelnik. She's an adjunct faculty member at the Moody Bible Institute. What do you say? Specific ways? In Romans, it says that my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And first of all, I think we can just begin with that very, very important prayer that they would come to know who Messiah is that their heart would be open and that they would be willing to hear the good news that the Messiah of Israel has come and that he loves them 
and wants to have a personal relationship with them. Any other specific ways to pray? I mean, I, I think also pray for open doors. It talks about in, this, in the New Testament about praying for open doors of opportunity, that we would be alert to those open doors and say, okay, they're having an issue in their life right now with their teenage kids. Mm. Help me, God, to show how you can help solve that problem for them. I think of uh, Ron Hutchcraft who talks about the three open prayer. Lord, open a door. Lord, open a heart. Lord, open my mouth. Yes, I love Ron. That's such a great parallel. Open the door, open their heart, open my mouth. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Ways to pray for your Jewish friend. Thoughts there from Eva Rydelnik here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Thanks for joining us today. Ah, Thank you, John. Dr. David Croto is the Dean and Professor of New Testament and Greek for Columbia Biblical Seminary at Columbia International University. He has authored several books, including Tithing After the Cross, Urban Legends of the New Testament, and he's co-written with Gary Yates, Urban Legends of the Old Testament. Welcome to the conversation here on The Land and the Book, David. It's great being with you, John. Thanks for having me. Well, at what point is a commonly held belief an urban legend? I mean, what kind of a grid do you use? Yeah, so for a passage to become an urban legend, it has to be something that is just commonly believed, circulating in the Christian culture that has no real basis in scholarship or in the text of Scripture. And a lot of times scholars will, nine out of ten of us, will will look at some of these interpretations, we'll go, we all know that's not true, but yet we hear it Sunday after Sunday in a church. Those are the kinds of things that we categorize as urban legends. I love the straightforward way that you lay things out in the book. Every chapter includes an urban legend, and uh, you begin with the legendary teaching and immediately follow with a segment titled Countering the Legendary Teaching, lavishly illustrated with Scripture, of course. How uh, difficult was this project to assemble? You know, the Urban Legends of the Old Testament book, I'll be honest with you, was, was, was a challenge for me because I'm a New Testament guy. Um, I was so blessed to work with Dr. Gary Yates. He's an incredible man and an incredible scholar. So he made it a lot less uh, painful than it could have been. The real challenge was he and I sat down and we brainstormed urban legends of the Old Testament, and we came up with like 106. And then narrowing it down to 40 was brutal. Uh, We almost asked the publisher if we could do 50 because there were just so (laughs) many things we wanted to cover. But that, that was one of the most difficult things was getting it down to 40. All right, let's dig into as many of these urban legends as we can, starting with this one. Women were created inferior to men. My goodness, where do people get that in Genesis chapter 2? They do. Walk us through this, David. Yeah, that's uh, such an unfortunate understanding of uh, the passage in Genesis. So in in Genesis, when God creates woman, he, he creates her to be a helper for man. And people have taken that word helper, and the connotation is, in in English at least, it seems to come across like, well, she just helps him, like almost like a maid or a servant, definitely someone less than. And when you look at the Hebrew word there and kind of trace the Hebrew word through the Old Testament, you find that the word helper has zero connotation of less than. In fact, God is referred to Israel's helper several times in the Old Testament, and the helper has zero connotation of being less than. And uh, I actually received a phone call a couple years ago before I even wrote the chapter from this lady who somehow found my name and number and was telling me that she just realized that women aren't inferior to men, and she'd been taught that her whole life. And I'm like, where'd you get that idea from? And she pointed out this passage, and I walked through the passage with her, and she just felt liberated, like, okay, so I'm not less than a man. Of course you're not less than a man. 
So, yeah, it's that word helper that really has thrown people for a loop. How did you choose which legends to include and which to leave out? We wanted to make sure that we chose things that were common and not just like, oh, I, I got this in an email one day and you know, when I asked people about it, no one's ever heard of it. We wanted to make sure we chose things that um, were substantial, not like being nitpicky. So, you know, uh, issues that really, you know, might not just nuancing the passage, but really change how we understand the passage. So we wanted things that were significant and things that were pretty common. All right, let's go to another one of these uh, urban legends of the Old Testament. The tithe in ancient Israel was 10% of income. Uh, True or false? Uh, False. So the tithe referred to, in the Old Testament, the word tithe, first of all, means a tenth. That's what the word means. Some people think the word tithe means giving. It doesn't mean giving. It means a, a tenth. And so because the word tithe means a tenth, people go, oh, so they must have given a tenth of their income. But when you read through the tithing passages like Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 14, Numbers 18, when you read through those passages, you realize that it wasn't like everything that was increased to you, you had to give a tithe on. It was only crops that grew from the land of Israel and cattle that fed off the land of Israel. So if you built houses or you were a blacksmith, and we see those in in the book of Genesis, we see people doing those things. If that's what you did and and you got paid for that, you didn't have to pay a tithe for that kind of income. It was only crops that came from the land and cattle that fed off the land. In fact, if you read through Leviticus 27, not necessarily the most famous passage, uh, I've never seen anyone have like Leviticus 27:30 tattooed on their arm or anything, but if you read through it and it talks about how you decide which animal you will tithe, it says you count them and the tenth one is the one you tithe, the tenth one. That means if you had nine animals, you wouldn't give any. And if you had 19 animals, you'd only give one. So it'd be actually really rare for you to actually give 10%. It was only if you had 10, 20, or 30 animals would you actually give 10%. In all those situations, you'd actually be giving less. Now, I don't want to complexify this, this issue too much for you right now, but needless to say, there wasn't even one tithe in Israel. There were multiple tithes. Some years there were two. Some years there were three tithes. And so it wasn't off of income, and it wasn't even... 10% all the time, and it wasn't just one 10% that they had to give a year. It was multiple ties that would go to different things to support the religion and the nation. We're talking about urban legends of the Old Testament with our guest, David Croto. I'm John Geiger, and this is The Land and the Book, another urban legend found in Proverbs chapter 22. Proper parenting guarantees godly children. Yeah, this one has really hurt a lot of people. You know, uh, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn away from it. This idea that proverbs are promises is damaging because, you know, you can be a fine parent, and you can raise your kid in church and have a godly home, and they can turn away from the faith. And if you understand that proverb as a promise, you would have to conclude, I messed up as the parent. Now, we do make mistakes as parents. There are no perfect parents. But generally, you know, if you do a good job and the kid turns away, it doesn't mean it's your fault based on that proverb. So a lot of parents have this feeling of guilt when their kids turn away from the faith because of the proverb. The first principle to remember is proverbs aren't promises. Proverbs are general truths that come true most of the time, like 70, 80% of the time, but they're not guarantees. 
And so what that proverb is getting at is if you raise your child well, there's a really good chance that child will grow up and follow the Lord. A really good chance, but it's not a guarantee. Another common urban legend is that God created evil, and that's apparently based in Isaiah chapter 45. Your comment, David. Yeah, Isaiah 45, 7 is, uh, is the passage there. And some of this has to do with what translation, honestly, that you're using for God creating evil. But if we read through Isaiah, I form light, I create darkness, I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does these things. And I think that the idea that God created evil, it really comes from the King James translation. And this, this is some of the basis for these urban legends are uh, mistranslations that really have been clarified through some of the more modern ones. So the King James actually says, and create evil, that God created evil. But you look at the more uh, modern translations, and it doesn't say evil. It says disaster in the Christian standard. The ESV says create calamity. And so that, of course, opens up a whole other issue of God creating disaster or creating calamity. But the key to the understanding this issue of God creating evil is that's just really a bad translation in the King James. The King James was a wonderful translation for 1611. What they accomplished was absolutely incredible. But no translation is perfect. And, um, and that was uh, an example of where they misunderstood the Hebrew word there. Okay, let's talk about another urban legend in the Old Testament. This one suggests that God never wanted Israel to have a king. That's based in 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 12. Now, that's how I was taught as a kid, that God didn't want Israel to have a king, that uh, they were warned what would happen to them if they did have a king. But you say that's urban legend. Why? You know, John, I actually taught that God never wanted Israel to have a king. Uh, when I started teaching in higher education, that was my view, and it took an Old Testament professor down the hallway from me to sit me down and, and walk through this with me uh, several times before I, I bought into it. Um, the Old Testament, there were warnings about kingship. However, we can know pretty certainly that God always intended Israel to have a king because he promised that kings would come from the line of Abraham and Jacob. We can see that in Genesis 17, uh, Genesis 35, even when Jacob blessed his sons in Genesis 49, there was this anticipation of the future reign of the house of David regarding a, a kingship. Um, the prophecy in Numbers 20, 24 talks about a, a ruler, a king-like person who was going to arise. So even very early on in Scripture, we see these references to uh, the plan that God had for a, for a king. Deuteronomy 17 sets up rules for kingship. So I understand why people think that God never wanted a king. It's because of the warnings about some of the negative consequences of having a king. But that doesn't mean he never had a plan for them to have one. Today on The Land and the Book, we're looking at urban legends of the Old Testament. Our guest, David Croto. Well, what do we do when we encounter these urban legends that we have believed wrongly for maybe years, you know, and, and now we come along with newer information, a broader, more informed biblical perspective? You know, what do we do with these old things that we have held on to? You know, I was, uh, I was actually teaching at a pastor's conference in Indonesia, Jakarta, Indonesia, and I was going through some of these urban legends. And after I finished, uh, I did a Q&A, and a pastor raised his hand, and through a translator, he said, he, he asked that exact question, what do we do? What you told us is wrong is the only thing we've ever heard. Mm -hmm. So what are we supposed to do with this? 
And I was kind of shocked because I didn't, I didn't have never been asked that question before. And finally, I was able to, to answer him, and I said, you know, first of all, we should all come to Scripture humbly, ready to be taught. Mm-hmm. Um, you can read through the Bible a hundred times, and you're still going to learn things. Paul wants us to be like Bereans, asking questions, being inquisitive, keeping an open mind, learning, learning, learning. And so I think that that's the disposition we need to have. So when we, when we realize that something we've understood is wrong, and now we have heard enough evidence to convince us that what we thought was wrong, and now we know what's right, we need to humbly just adopt the teaching that makes more sense, that's more biblical, makes sense in the context, and then teach those things. The danger, however, and I talk about this in the books, uh, the Old Testament book and the New Testament book, is using these things as like a sledgehammer. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll, I'll tell my students, for example, if your pastor gets up in the pulpit and he preaches and he mentions one of these urban legends and he falls for it, don't walk up to him and say, and say, you know, just start ripping on him or thinking he's an <laughs> idiot or he's stupid or something like that. Be humble, be kind, and then buy him a copy of my book. No, I don't say that. But, you know, <laughs> sit down with him and just try to explain you know, what your take is. I have pastors of churches I go to all the time fall for some of these legends, and I'll I'll take them out to lunch, and I'll just say, hey, here's how I understand that passage. And sometimes the next week they get up and they fix it. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do. Helping us sort out truth from legend is Dr. David Croteau. He's written Urban Legends of the Old Testament, and a link to that book is at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Well, we don't have more urban legends. We've got biblical answers to common questions that uh, arise when you and I work our way through the scriptures. There's a whole stack of those waiting for you on the other side of this break, right here on The Land and the Book. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book. I'm John Gaker with our host, Charlie Dyer. Here's what's going to happen on this next segment. We're going to pull out of the hat a bunch of questions that have come in to us via email, questions about the Bible, prophecy, the Middle East. And you should know up front that if you've got a question, it's welcome too. We'll share later on how you can get that question to us. But right now, I've got a question of my own. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? And, and why is it important? What does it mean for you? Well, John, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that very issue. It's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, and it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, let's get to our first question, this one from Carolyn. My question, she says, comes from Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, the parable of the fig tree. From past prophetic teaching, I've understood that the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. Do you interpret verse 32 in that same way? And if so then could you please share your perspective on verse 34, which reads, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. I'm kind of confused about all this. Yeah, I see the illustration of the fig tree there being Jesus's way of saying to his followers that they'll be able to discern the end times when the events begin to unfold. Uh, Just like a fig tree getting its leaves signals the approach of summer, 
So the early events he described in Matthew 24 are a reminder that the end is getting close. Uh, But Jesus quickly then adds that they won't be able to discern the exact day or hour of his return. Now, the generation he has in mind is the generation that will be on earth when those events he's describing in Matthew 24 begin to unfold. And while those listening to him that day might have thought they were part of that generation, We know his coming didn't happen at that time. But once God removes the church from the earth, the Jewish people still here will be the generation that will be in view. And what Jesus is saying is that once the end times begin, they'll move quickly toward their appointed end. Ghani says in our Friday Bible study at church, we were discussing the phrase in the order of Melchizedek. That's Hebrews chapters four through seven in reference to the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the phrase mean? The writer of Hebrews is using Melchizedek to show the superiority of Jesus to the Aaronic priesthood. Someone might have objected that Jesus wasn't a legitimate high priest because he wasn't from the physical line of Aaron. So the writer's demonstrating that Jesus's priesthood was from the line of Melchizedek, and he shows the parallels between Jesus and Melchizedek. Melchizedek is presented without knowing his genealogy. It says he was without father or mother. Melchizedek functioned as both a king and priest, and it was of the city of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And when Abraham paid a tithe of the spoil to Melchizedek, he was acknowledging Melchizedek's spiritual authority over him. Well, since Levi and the priests that came from his sons descended from Abraham, the Levitical priests were, in essence, paying tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. So uh, the writer is really saying the priesthood of Jesus, who was the ultimate king priest of Jerusalem, parallels the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that makes his role as high priest greater than that of the sons of Aaron. Nanette says, your show is the highlight of my Saturday morning listening. I've enjoyed it for a number of years on KHCB 105.7 FM in Houston. Just love it. Well, thank you for that, Nanette. She says, my question is about eucalyptus trees that grow in abundance all around Israel. As a natural-born Australian, I noticed them on my first journey, wondered how and why they got there. Could you enlighten me on how the eucalyptus managed to stray so far away from its homeland? Yeah, the eucalyptus trees were first brought to Israel in the late 1800s to help drain the swamps. Uh, The tree has thrived to the point where few now who go there realize it's not a native species. But uh, you're absolutely correct in noticing that it originally came from Australia. And uh, I'm glad you were able to spot them there. And I hope you get a chance to return to Israel someday soon. All right, this question from Roberta, who heard you on Janet Parshall's radio program, Charlie, mentioning that the Antichrist has to be a friend to Israel, someone that they would trust. Can you share with me a verse that backs that up? Yeah, and what I'd say is, uh, actually, I see three passages put together that I think help explain that. And the first is Daniel 9, 27. The final seven-year period uh, comes when the prince who's to come, that is the Antichrist, uh, will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. Well, since the entire prophecy focuses on the Jewish people in Jerusalem, my assumption is that this covenant being made by the Antichrist is with the Jewish people in Jerusalem. The second passage is 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Paul says there, the day of the Lord will begin when people are talking about a time of peace and safety, which they think has arrived. And I take that to be a reference to the Antichrist arriving on the scene, you know, riding his white horse as the counterfeit Messiah, promising to bring the time of peace to the world. And I think Israel will initially buy into that lie and accept him as the man promising to provide that peace and protection. And the third passage was Ezekiel 38, which starts uh, describing the battle of Gog and Magog. But it says when that battle takes place, which I think is early in the tribulation, 
Israel will be living in safety, it says, and there'll be a nation peaceful and unsuspecting. And again, it sounds like Israel has let down its guard, having trusted the Antichrist's promises of peace and protection in that covenant he's made with them. If you're just joining us, this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, Segment 3. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. We're uh, having a whirlwind tour of questions that have come into us via email. Yours welcome anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Paul Price writes, Dear Brother Dyer, I love, love, love the program. Listen every week on the Moody app, and I love each section equally. Question, what is the difference between our spirit and our soul? Well, I think the basic difference is the soul is what I might describe as our our intellect and our emotion and our will. It focuses on who we are internally. The spirit is that part of our internal being designed to connect us to God. It's the God consciousness that we have that actually separates humans from other animals who also display intellect, emotion, and will, but who are clueless when it comes to understanding the reality of God. This question from Robert, I'm wondering how you put together Jeremiah 3, verse 8, where God gives Israel, but not Judah, a certificate of divorce in light of Deuteronomy 24 and Jeremiah 31, where Israel and Judah are unified, and possibly Ephesians 5, where the church is the bride of Christ, and Romans 11, where Gentile believers are grafted into Israel, or is it Judah? And Charlie, I'm confused. (laughs) Well, I think the key on this is to remember in Jeremiah's passage, he's using that certificate of divorce as an illustration. Now, here's why I say that. If you push illustrations too far in that passage, you could actually end up with God being a bigamist. It says he's married to both Israel and Judah. Well, obviously, the point of Jeremiah's passage isn't to picture God as a bigamist. What he's showing is that prohibition in Deuteronomy 24 really says that someone who was divorced and remarried is never allowed to go back to their original spouse. So in Jeremiah's illustration, he's saying God would be perfectly within his rights to never allow the northern kingdom back. Uh, But then Jeremiah makes his real point. As bad as the northern kingdom of Israel was, they're still more righteous than Judah was in Jeremiah's day. And the implication is that the judgment of Judah, it's on its way. Now, another passage where this kind of illustration is used is Hosea chapter 2. God tells Hosea to rebuke, which is a legal term, Israel, because she's not my wife. I'm Hmm. not her husband. Hmm. In other words, God says he's divorcing Israel for her behavior. But then later in the chapter, God promises to woo her back to himself and betroth her to himself forever. In other words, the imagery of divorce and remarriage is being used to picture God's judgment against the nation of Israel and then ultimately his promised restoration of the nation in the future. And they use that imagery, I think, because the people understood the seriousness of divorce. And so when the prophet wants to picture God's judgment coming, he uses that imagery of divorce. Carolyn asks, when Eve and subsequently Adam fell in the garden, was part of the package of the fall that they compromised their free will? And did they compromise their God-given authority over creation? Do you think also that the serpent had perhaps had prior conversations with them? I doubt there's any way to know for sure, since I'm unaware that there's any context for that scenario. But I was just curious what your perspective might be. Yeah, well, you know, we do know things changed after the fall. For example, you know, thorns and thistles that grew up later uh, made the task of exercising dominion over the earth more difficult. But I do think God still expected Adam and Eve to exercise dominion. And I say that because following the flood, God says almost the same thing to Noah and his sons that he had said earlier to Adam and Eve. Now, however, I'm not sure how this relates to the interplay between God's sovereignty and and free will. I believe both of those are taught in the Bible. I just don't know how to reconcile them because I'm not that smart. 
and in regard to the serpent talking with Adam and Eve prior to the temptation, uh, we're just not told. So I have to simply say, I don't know. Two quick questions here as we wrap up. Uh, Kem asks about Numbers 11. First, why would Joshua have been so distressed about Eldad and Medad prophesying in the camp? Moses' response seems to indicate no reason for concern. And second, why was the plague sent after the request for meat was granted? Well, in regard to the first, I think Joshua was distressed because he felt that these people were actually trying to assume leadership from Moses. And uh, Moses has to respond and and let him know that it's okay, it's God's choice. Uh, In regard to the second part, I think God's judging the people because of their unbridled greed. Uh, God had sent quail, sent the superabundance to show what he could do. And what they were really showing by gathering so much was showing they didn't trust his ability to meet their needs. Thank you for your answers, Charlie, and we're looking forward to your devotional next on The Land and the Book. Question, have you ever knowingly run from God? Honestly, has there ever been a a time in your Christian walk where you would truly have to say God clearly made known what he wanted you to do and you went the other way? Well, you're not the first. The Old Testament character of Jonah, a Bible story that many of us have grown up with, is the focus of Charlie Dyer's devotional, Up Next on the Land and the Book. Charlie, a sneak preview of what you're about to talk about. Uh, We want to talk about the other prophet from Galilee. Now, we always know about Jesus, but Jonah was the other prophet from Galilee. Uh, Where he's from and what he did all tie together, and that's what we want to look at. Interesting perspective and background that you've maybe not heard before in Charlie's devotional in just a moment. But before we get to that, though, let's listen to this Holy Land experience, the testimony of two different people who've been to the Holy Land and share this with us. Hi, my name is Rob, and uh, I'm so thankful for this Holy Land experience. Uh, I used to spend a lot of time looking at uh, maps and topography and uh, thought I kind of knew things a little bit. And I can remember going up to Mount Arabel, which is high above the Sea of Galilee, and just looking across and seeing, not just on a map, but seeing all the cities, Capernaum, and just seeing the King's Highway and the valleys and and, uh, just gaining a new appreciation for where things are. And uh, I'm actually looking forward to reading the Bible again so I can actually look up all those places and remember them, seeing them live. My name is Katie from Michigan. And I I think it's so easy to, when you read the Bible and you've been a Christian a long time, it, it you'd lose some of the significance and the impact of it. So it was neat to hear Charlie explain it in the context of where it happened and it makes it come alive and it just makes it more meaningful and makes it exciting again. And of course the baptismal service was awesome. Thanks. It's one of those Bible stories that just never, ever, ever grows old. The story of Jonah. Whether you're a little kid like my grandkids or a big kid, you ponder it, puzzle over it. Charlie, I'll let you take it away. All right. Well, okay, everybody ready? Say goodbye to Nazareth as our bus tops the hill and begins its descent into the valley beyond. Jet lag and lunch are starting to take their toll on our group, and I can see a few beginning to slump in their seats. I need to do something to grab their attention, something to shake off the cobwebs and pop open their eyes, and that something is just coming into view. Look closely at the village just coming into view on the left side of the bus. You see that hill on top, how it's flat and has that open space with just a few trees? That flat spot is actually the location of an Old Testament town named Gath Heifer. Now, that name might not mean much to you, but let me read a verse from 2 Kings 14 that describes the exploits of a king from Israel. 
but listen closely for the name of this town and the person who lived there. He, that is the king, restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. As I look back, I can see the passengers now straining to look out the window at the hill to our left. They're instantly awake as they connect what they're seeing to the Bible. And for one or two, a light goes off. Wait a minute, we're only a mile or two from Nazareth. You mean Jesus grew up that close to the town where Jonah the prophet lived? That's right. Jesus and Jonah would have been neighbors, except for the fact that Jonah died about eight centuries before Jesus. But the close proximity of one of Israel's greatest prophets could help explain Jesus' focus on Jonah when he announced to the religious leaders that the only sign to be given to them was the sign of Jonah the prophet. And certainly those leaders had it wrong when they mockingly said to Nicodemus, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, Jonah certainly did. And yet, when most people think of Jonah, they think mainly of a disobedient prophet who ended up smelling like a fish. Is there anything we can learn about Jonah's background that might help us better understand this wayward prophet? Let's stop and hike to the top of Gath-Hefer to view life from Jonah's perspective. See that beautiful valley below? It forms a natural connection between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. And about five miles to our east, the international highway from Mesopotamia to Egypt connected to this very valley as it went from the Sea of Galilee toward Megiddo. From their vantage point here, the people of Gath-Hefer could have seen the dust clouds kicked up by any armies traveling along that well-worn path. Gath-Hefer was far enough off the main road to not be a primary target for such armies. But eventually, any invading army, if it was victorious, would stamp its control over all the land, including smaller villages like Gath-Hefer. What set Gath-Hefer apart was the fact that it knew when the armies were on the march. And in Jonah's day, all eyes were focused on the rising power to the north, watching for the Assyrians. We're quick to criticize Jonah for his disobedience to God. When God called him to head northeast to Nineveh, Jonah took off southwest toward Joppa. But we need to remember what the Assyrians were like. They were brutal, barbaric, even sadistic. They boasted about their torture of captives, even picturing it on their palace walls. Think of the beheadings and other tortures we've seen at the hands of groups like uh, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or even the Mexican drug cartels. And then imagine God calling you to go and deliver a message of judgment to them. Isaiah might have jumped up and shouted, Here am I, Lord, send me. But I have a feeling we'd be more likely to respond as Jonah did if God were to call us to such a suicide mission. Standing here at Gath-Hefer, I can understand why Jonah responded as he did. He knew the Assyrians were Israel's enemies. Only a few decades after his death, the Assyrians attacked and eventually destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. In a very real sense, Jonah saw Nineveh as an existential threat. Ultimately, he disobeyed God to try to save his own country. We can't agree with what Jonah did, but we can understand why he did it. God had to deal with two problems, Jonah's actions and his attitude. God started with his actions. The account of Jonah and the fish was designed to correct Jonah's actions. He had to learn that God wouldn't tolerate disobedience. Jonah finally got it 
and cried out from the fish, Salvation is from the Lord. Only God could deliver Jonah, and only God could deliver the people of Nineveh, or Israel. In chapter 3, God repeated his command to go to Nineveh, and this time Jonah obeyed. His actions were on target, but not his attitude. He was like the kid staring at a plate of lima beans. Okay, I'll eat them, but I won't like them. I'll do what you want, God, but I'll be grumbling about it the whole time. God spared Nineveh by the end of chapter 3, but it takes another chapter for God to deal with Jonah's attitude. And while the fish was sufficient to correct Jonah's actions, God needed a vine, a worm, and a scorching east wind to soften Jonah's heart and teach him the importance of compassion. As we get ready to head back to the bus, what lessons can we take with us from Gath Heifer? I see at least two that are important for us today. First, a poor attitude is no excuse for disobedience. God expected Jonah to go and speak to Nineveh, regardless of how he felt about it. We need to remind ourselves that God is to be obeyed, whether we feel like it or not. But second, I think Gath Heifer and Jonah remind us that God also cares about our attitude. Doing what we should is important. Understanding the heart and character of God is even more important. The gap between our head and our heart can sometimes seem wider than the Grand Canyon. If God only cared about obedience, then the book of Jonah would have ended at the end of chapter 3. God cared for Nineveh, and he wanted Jonah to understand why. Sometimes things happen to us in life, and they're designed by God to direct our actions. But at other times, God brings things into our lives to work on our attitude, to refine us, mature us, tenderize us, and bring us to see the world through his eyes, not our own. And we can thank Jonah, the prophet from Gath Heifer in Galilee, for helping us gain that perspective. Charlie, I never knew that Jonah's hometown was just a mile away from Nazareth. Yeah, isn't that absolutely amazing? It's mind-blowing, and it does make you say, maybe that's the reason why it came so quickly to Jesus. No sign shall be given but the sign of Jonah. Yeah. Very, very interesting insight. And Charlie, I will resist the urge to say something like that was a, a whale of a great devotional, or <laughs> that kind of humor would come across as fishy. Well, our time is almost gone, but I want to encourage you to visit our Facebook page where there are always fresh stories, fresh photos, tidbits and snippets that you won't get anywhere else. You can uh, reach our Facebook page with a quick visit to thelandandthebook.org, our website, thelandandthebook.org, and click on the Facebook icon. Well, we hope you'll be back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.